Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Donald Trump delivered a big league tax reform plan this week. Fred Barnes is here to tell us what's in it and what hurdles Republicans are going to have to clear if they hope to pass the plan into law. And just on the outside chance that you haven't heard it already, this weekend marks the end of President Trump's first 100 days in office. Who knew? Michael Warren knew, that's who. He's here to help us do a gala confab first 100 days wrap-up. All that next on the confab. And now to get the confab going in earnest, we welcome Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Fred, how's it going? It's going well. Glad to be here. So here we are, not even two weeks after the pain of filing taxes. So within painful memory of tax day, and Donald Trump rolls out a big tax reform plan. You call it dazzling. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because there's so many incentives for to invest, to speed uh, economic growth, and so on, and uh, that's what we need. You know, we've had stagnant uh, growth during the Obama years, not much better during the George W. Bush years. Clinton and Reagan, they were great. It was that interlude of the first President Bush, where not much was happening economically, but uh, we need something to. Uh, America suffers when growth is slow. We're a country based on on strong economic growth. That's, uh, I mean, that's who we are. We're the most important country in the world, and we have so much to export and so much to invent, and uh, you can't do it unless the people who do those kind of things have incentives. Well, what do those incentives look like? What What is it that— <laughs> More money, for one thing, in their pockets that they can invest. No, they look like lower taxes uh, uh, for corporations uh, and even for small businesses, you know, that so-called S-chapter S companies, you know, that are individuals who uh, are actually a company, and they usually pay at the uh, income tax rate. But the Trump bill, if, if that part passes, something will pass, but if that part passes, they'll get uh, uh, to pay at a much lower rate— uh, the corporate rate, which Trump would have at 15 percent, it's now 35 percent. It's more likely to be something like 20 percent, where uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan would put it. Uh, but there are just so many different things in this bill that are really good incentives uh, that uh, I, and that I was dazzled. Well, now you allow that um, that in, under this bill that economic growth would be uh, encouraged dramatically, mm-hmm. and yet. You are you are doubtful that the Trump administration is going to get very far with the argument that this bill will pay for itself mm-hmm. through increased economic growth. What, is there not going to be enough economic growth, or is it that the way economic growth gets calculated for legislative purposes mm-hmm. is uh, not going to work? Well, I think both are true, actually. Uh, there will be a, a spurt of economic growth spread over the next— you know, five to ten years, and 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 sooner than that as well. But uh, you can't say uh, you, 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 that's not enough. Uh, I, I think to uh, pay for all this uh, will cost and lost revenue to the government. Uh, but also, there's a trick here. 
just like in the, with the Obamacare repeal and, and replace bill, you have to get through this arcane process of reconciliation at the, and in the Senate. So the House has to pass a bill that slips through this little hole in the Senate, and uh, voila, we have, we have tax reform. Now, the, the key to reconciliation being that anything passed via reconciliation has to be revenue neutral. It can't mm-hmm. add to right. the deficit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And if you can do it that way, then you're able to get a bill passed mm-hmm. with the House and with a simple majority in the mm-hmm. Senate as opposed to having to get the supermajority to defeat a filibuster. You explained that very well. And that's, oh, thank you. That, thank you. That, that's true. Better than I did. I, I'm going to have to go back and edit my piece. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but it's fine. I mean, the Paul Ryan approach, the House Republican approach, would be to have a 20% tax on imports to the country. That's very tangible. You can put that down uh, in reconciliation, and they'll know what it is, what it, uh, what it will do. But if you say, oh, growth, growth will, uh, will be fine, uh, that won't work. Now, who does the scoring for this? Is this Congressional Budget Office who's in charge of that? Um, I'm not sure exactly, but it's, uh, you know, it's pinhead somewhere. But it's not the president saying, <laughs> no. I assign this much growth uh, yeah, no, to— you, you to, can't do that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he could, he so could it's beyond that. his control. It's beyond part his of it. uh, assertiveness. But, you know, here—I mean, there's so many things interesting about this fight. One is, you know, now— all, all all fights in Washington that are not between uh, uh, Trump and Democrats or Trump and the press are between Trump and Paul Ryan. Right. Is, and is is Trump going to be able to get uh, an energetic response from Capitol Hill, from, uh, from Capitol Hill Republicans? Is he going to be able to hold them together? Because he has not so far been able to do that. Well, it looks like he's going to be able to hold them together on the health care bill. But tax reform is is something else. I mean, I remember tax reform uh, back in the 1980s, and it took two years to really get it organized and passed. And and it and and that bill passed in 1986. Uh, when right up to the day that it passed, practically everybody was in Washington was saying it can't pass <laughs> because there's so many reasons why it can't pass. It, it, in those days. How did they pay for tax reform? How did they pay for all this loss of revenue for, uh, uh, that was caused by by tax cuts? Well, they got rid of all these tax loopholes uh, in the tax code, uh, you know, that special privileges and special preferences for certain companies and trades and, and so on. And it broadened the tax base. Uh, and you know, that's what uh, we need to have. One of the things that's interesting about cutting loopholes mm-hmm. is, one, it has this sort of revenue effect. It helps to pay for broad-based mm-hmm. cutting sure. of, of taxes. But one thing that Republicans fail to emphasize about cutting loopholes is it is a it is an engine for freedom to get rid of loopholes. Because what are loopholes mm-hmm. but the federal government, which can't tell you you have to do X, Y, or Z— what they can do, however, is they can say, we'll tax you at this higher rate unless mm-hmm. you do X, Y, or Z. So mm-hmm. it's a, the tax code has been turned into an all-purpose method of controlling people's behavior by mm-hmm. taxing them at different levels yeah. based on whether they do what the federal government mm-hmm. wants them to do or not. Cut out loopholes, and you cut out a lot of the leverage that the federal government has to make us do this, that, or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but... Uh 
uh, there's a lot to be said for that. The uh, I'm not defending it. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. And you know, one of the things, um, one of the people who's a big uh, a pusher of tax reform is a congressman from Chicago named Peter Roskam, who says, <laughs> who says there's one thing that everybody agrees on. He says this uh, 2017 is a unique. It it's a year. It it's a a year where we can do something we haven't been able to do in so many years, and that's reform the tax code with permanent. A, a permanent tax system that people will know where they stand and companies will know where to invest and so on. He said, what, people agree on one thing. They hate the tax code and they hate the Internal Revenue Service. What's not to hate, right? Yeah. Well, that's right. It's, it's one of the great unifying factors in America. You had a, a colorful quote from Congressman <laughs> yeah. Roscom in the piece about how uh, if, the, if the IRS were on the sidewalk <laughs> choking, people would come by and say, uh, I don't think you're going to make it. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> so now you mentioned the magic word, the magic word being permanent. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between permanent and temporary taxes uh, in terms of the the effect that one or the other has? Well, uh, it's really very simple. Permanent taxes are there unless Congress acts to change them. Uh, but uh, the other tax, the temporary taxes are indeed temporary, and they will expire on their own. For instance, the Bush, uh, George W. Bush tax uh, cuts in 2001 and 2003 were temporary tax cuts. So after 10 years... They expired. And why is it that regulations are never temporary, but tax cuts <laughs> always seem to be? Yeah. The, uh, yeah, that's a good question. But but they are because because those guys want your money and, <laughs> and they want to make and they want to make it easier for them to keep getting it. What do you think the prospects for Trump's tax reform at this point are? Uh, well, I think they're pretty good, uh, and I think it'll have to be more like the. Uh, Ryan bill. I mean, they're not that far apart. They both want deep uh, cuts in the corporate tax rate. They want smaller cuts in the individual tax rate. They want some kind of a system that will attract all that all that money from American companies who want who got profits overseas and haven't brought the money back because they because they'll have to pay at the American uh, corporate tax rate after paying in the foreign country as well, um, and they'll have some. Uh, low tax like 10% or 8% to attract them to bring this money back. Is there any particular legislative text that both the House Freedom Caucus and the Tuesday group people can can agree on or are one or the other always going to balk? You know, they have came they came together the moderates uh, and the and the conservatives in 1986. But it was different then. It was bipartisan. We didn't have the kind of polarization we have between the parties now. You didn't have one party saying, we don't care what this guy is proposing. We're going to resist all of it. You know, you didn't have that. They could work together. I mean, they, uh, Republicans and Democrats, you don't have that anymore. Um, so, uh, well, I forgot what the question was. Well, and I guess actually a related question is, has Donald Trump learned from his experience on the fiasco with health care? Mm-hmm. Has he learned anything about what he needs to do to hold his troops together on the Hill? Well, I think so, but he he's not off to a good start on tax reform because there's this uh, uh, disagreement between the House Republican bill, 
uh, fashioned by Speaker Paul Ryan, and the bill uh, from the White House fashioned by all those guys who were in the Treasury Department in the White House from, uh, but formerly worked mm-hmm. at Goldman Sachs. Uh, so uh, there's a battle going on, and uh, it's uh, it, it's I'll have to say it's pretty tame, but you know they're going to have to come together on one bill. You know, anytime the the opposition is entirely united against you, there's not a whole lot of room for dissent on your side of the aisle. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does happen. And uh, uh, I think Paul Ryan probably has more allies than Donald Trump does at this point, but his allies are all afraid of Donald Trump, so <laughs> they may not get out of their foxholes. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard, thanks for joining us on the Confab. You're welcome. And now we welcome to the Confab senior writer, White House correspondent for the Weekly Standard, Michael Warren. Michael, how are you doing? I'm great, Eric. It's uh, it's hard to believe it's been 100 days, and you've survived somehow the roller coaster, the whipsaw, whatever yeah it's, analogy uh, you want to use. Well, I've certainly survived. I don't know how anybody working at the White House <laughs> has been able to survive. I guess some people have already gotten out, but it's uh, it's been kind of a crazy 100 days, and you know we've only got. 1,360 left <laughs> by my, or more uh, if he wins a second term. So you have an article in the Weekly Standard um, today uh, noting the 100 days of the Trump administration by declaring that this is an ad hoc presidency. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to me that it is not entirely a positive thing to be <laughs> ad hoc in the presidency. Well, it's look, it's descriptive of what it is. And this is based on, uh, you know, people that I talk with who work in the administration, who work in the White House. Um, they may not have put it in those words exactly, but it's the impression that they have, which is uh, every decision that the president makes, that this administration makes, is seemingly has n- really nothing to do with. Uh, any grand overarching strategy or ideology or uh, a, a plan, uh, it seems to be really each decision is made in the moment based on perhaps what the president's current emotions are or the last person who uh, he spoke with before making the decision. Um, and this, uh, I think, has yielded some positive results, particularly if you're a Trump critic from the right uh, or from sort of a traditional conservative view. Uh, But, of course, it's also caused a lot of problems Uh, and not just problems if you are a critic from the right of the president, but from the president's own perspective. It's muddied up his own uh, agenda. And that's been a problem for him. Uh, Ultimately, I think on balance, it's a bad thing to be an ad hoc president. Uh, You simply don't have the, the time and the wherewithal to really get what you want done without something uh, higher, a higher principle or higher uh, vision guiding you. And at the moment, yeah. it seems to be that that higher principle or guiding value is whatever Trump's thinking at any given moment. But there is the the old, you know, boxing uh, slogan that everybody's got a plan until you get hit in the nose and then the plan doesn't matter anymore. That's right. You know, and that that's a slogan that suggests that being able to um, change your mind and play it by ear and be ad hoc in the ring is an advantage. Yeah, and I could I could see that argument, but I do think that as a president you need a kind of 
uh, base level of understanding, not just not for your own sake, but for all the people underneath you who are working for you and trying to advance your agenda. The, the federal government, the executive branch, is massive. It's big. Um, there's a lot of roadblocks in the way. It's not just Congress and, and sort of 435 uh, different voices in the House, 100 in the Senate, um, that uh, can can throw you off track. There's the sort of permanent bureaucracy within the executive branch. There's uh, opinion polls. There's people like you and me, you know, gabbing uh, in the media. Um, there's a lot of distractions and potential um, to get off course. What you need is really kind of a base level of support. Uh, to well, use we, the sort of boxing analogy, right, you, you need to have, um, you know, sort of some idea of uh, – uh, of what your what your plan is or what your uh, uh you know how how your opponent you know uh, uh punches or or the 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 way in which you need to approach each match you watch a video you sort of have an idea of um of who you're up against and uh flexibility to me is not the same as uh, as being ad hoc as as being as making decisions without any of that basis underneath. Right. Maybe the analogy that's more apt for for the position a president is in is uh, is combat of a different sort, which is military combat, where you have uh, a lot of smoke, a lot of things um, making it unclear what to do. Right. And the general is not in a position to be giving specific instructions to every platoon out there. That's right. So he needs to have um, uh, sub-level commanders who are capable of knowing what the the general is after in a general sort of way and be able to act on their own initiative to execute the things that the general would want. But if you don't know what the general wants as a as a broad principle then it's very hard to exercise initiative on your own that keeps the the army moving in the right direction that's right and uh, i was struck when i was uh, working on this piece and thinking about back to the last 100 days um of something actually that uh, a late friend of of ours cato burn who who died earlier this week long sort of conservative stalwart uh, uh, at National Review and other places, uh, worked in the Reagan administration and had this, uh, uh, I believe John J. Miller uh, noted this uh, in his uh, uh, memorial of her, uh, uh, reflected on what it was like to work for Ronald Reagan and said that everybody in the Reagan administration sort of never really needed that broad instruction because uh, everybody knew what Reagan stood for. They were all conservative and that's what Reagan was. And so you sort of went into work kind of knowing what you were there to do. That is not – I can just tell you that's not what uh, – that is not the case in the Trump administration. It's not the land of message discipline. Exactly. Not even that. Nobody really even knows what the president wants on any given day. And so what you've – you can see countless examples over the past 100 days where the president has decided by virtue of being the president, having the bully pulpit, whatever he says or does – makes news is important it's an instant agenda exactly so when it comes to for instance uh you know sort of saying offhandedly well you know three to five million uh illegal votes were cast and that's what 
prevented me from winning the popular vote. He said this, I think, three or four days into his presidency. Which, by the way, just as a general matter, if you've just won an election, <laughs> is it really the best thing to go out and cast doubt upon the legitimacy of the election that you won? I think we... we talked about this on a previous on the on the confab from that week it was it was kind of kind of crazy uh for him to do that but here was the effect of it the effect of it was that the president now pronounced this the uh, uh the white house press secretary sean spicer has to speak to the press about this the press asks well if this is the case isn't there going to be an investigation three to five million illegal votes sounds like a big scandal uh so then the press secretary suggests maybe there will be a uh, an investigation well that has uh, effects now. Now now the administration has to sort of cobble together some kind of investigation. The communication staff, uh, uh, which is just starting out in the White House, has to sort of uh, use precious and valuable time to sort of find examples of where people did vote illegally here, that, and the other, not on the scale that the president mentioned. Then all of a sudden the president's announcing, well, we are launching this executive investigation and uh, Vice President Mike Pence is in charge of it. So now this is an investigation the vice president's in charge of. All because of sort of an offhand remark that didn't help the president, certainly didn't advance his agenda, uh, and sort of wasted a bunch of people's uh, time and energy. And am I being unkind if if I admit that by observation of this press operation in this White House, that Sean Spicer is challenged in doing his job even when the facts are on his side, let alone having to... Um, try to make the case when the facts are not on his side. Yes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is it, it becomes even when, uh, as you say, the facts are on his side or there's a, a sort of um, a positive or worthwhile initiative, uh, this this whole sort of feeling within the White House, within the administration that you don't know where the president really stands on this. You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know. Uh, if he's going to make a 180 because of something he hears, uh, for instance, on cable news on a particular issue, it makes it very difficult and, and can be um, uh, can sort of freeze people uh, in the White House. And that's that's a sort of feeling that um, that the people I talk to have, which is they don't really know what they're going to be doing on any given day. They know they're, they're going to have to react. It's reactive. And, and, and that is, I think, a hallmark of presidencies. Ultimately, they all become reactive because events can overcome things. But to start things off so reactive and not uh, really in the driver's seat, I make this point in the piece that uh, it is very difficult at the beginning of a presidency. We maybe even raise expectations too much because while the president may be in a position uh, of political strength coming off their election, um, they're really operationally weak. There's not everybody's in place. Um, Nobody really even knows where to go. Um, And so you do try to have to kind of have to muddle through. The problem here is that there is, again, none of that base of idea of, okay, here's what we're here to do. Here's the kind of the the, the big picture of where we're moving forward. To the extent that that exists in the White House, in the administration, it's in the phrase, make America great again, which I can tell you, White House aides sort of toss that off. Uh, when sort of when their backs are up against the wall, well, what is this? What's the purpose of all this? What are we doing this for? What, you know, their their one fallback is, well, look, we're trying to make America great again. I I, I suppose that's a, 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 a an ethos that that has some sort of logical coherence, um, but it, it strikes me it's increasingly 
a way to explain away whatever it is that Trump has decided that maybe contradicts what he said the week before, what he said on the campaign trail, uh, or what the facts may be on the ground. Well, and how does that explain this week where the president makes it uh, clear that he's just about to um, sign the termination timetable for NAFTA, and then he gets a couple of phone calls from the head of Mexico, the head of Canada, and he decides, well, maybe that wasn't such a good—I mean, flip-flopping that dramatically on such a fundamental and important issue— can't be confidence-inspiring. Well, and particularly, Eric, on something that uh, on something that Trump has actually been consistent in public life for the last 20 years or more, 25 years nearly, uh, on NAFTA, which is he always said it's a bad deal. He always said it was, you know, going back to, you know, when it was being negotiated in 1993, he was uh, publicly quoted as saying, you know, this is, this is giving in to Mexico. So um, this is the one thing, if you're at the White House, you think, well, at least he's going to be consistent about this. Um, but but you're right. I mean, he this is this is that's, I think a perfect example of what I'm talking about with the ad hoc presidency, which is um, uh, he 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 sort of gets. Uh, there's a report somewhere I can't uh, remember exactly who reported it first, which is that two of his aides um, showed him a map of the country in places, particularly agriculture uh, heavy places, where um, uh, repealing NAFTA, getting rid of NAFTA would would hurt those folks, and he could see that. This is actually a uh, parts of the country where you did very well electorally. Um, and so sort of his uh, principled, I, I don't agree with it, his sort of principled stand against NAFTA falls by the wayside. Now he says maybe he, he will renegotiate it, but sort of falls by the wayside when he's presented with information that uh, uh, that at the moment he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like. Oh, well, wait a second. Repealing NAFTA is going to hurt me in the places where I did really well. Uh, well, forget the last 24 years of my uh, criticism of this, uh, I'm going to renegotiate it. And and so there's this feeling of what could you put in front of him next week that would make him change his mind again? Uh, we don't know. One thing this week is uh, the, the president has gone about doing a number of interviews with The Washington Post, um, with Reuters, um, talking about um, his first 100 days. Right. Um, I was particularly struck by a comment he had to Reuters that um, that that being president was um, surprisingly difficult. <laughs> that that it was, and he liked he to work. He thought it was going to be easier. He thought it was going to be easier than being a businessman. He likes to work. It's there's no laziness, right? But you know this this governing stuff. It's hard. Um, I yes. guess it suggests <laughs> that the president is learning. Right. This is, but this is a this is sort of again. Um, that sentiment trickles down throughout the throughout the White House and throughout the uh, the administration, which is that a kind of realization that what we're um, what what we've taken on here, those of us in the administration, is much more difficult. Whether it's repealing Obamacare, whether it's trying to get tax reform through, whether it's dealing with uh, North Korea or Iran or uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, um, so that that sort of realization by the president, um, I think is uh well i mean it 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 shows you that trump's critics during the campaign uh were right to suggest that this was a this was a bigger job than what trump was suggesting he would go around saying we're going to re- of course we're going to replace obamacare and we're going to make it with a so much better healthcare system and it's going to be so easy well 
it's not the same as sort of dictating to uh, a, you know uh, to a board of directors or within your own private business. Let's just get this done. I'm struck by something I heard. I've heard from somebody in the White House, which is the viewpoint that um, in private business, it's about uh, 20% planning and 80% uh, of execution, and that's the reverse in government. And that's a, that's a sort of lesson that uh, that I think the administration is slowly uh, learning, and they may not learn it quickly enough uh, to actually implement any kind of their agenda items before the 2018 elections, which could be a real bloodbath for Republicans uh, in the House. Michael Warren, senior writer for the Weekly Standard, White House correspondent. Uh, I look forward to having you back in the next 1,300 days. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks, Michael. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.